Well, this is the last week in our study through the book of Hosea. So if you got a Bible, you can go ahead and find the last chapter. That's Hosea chapter 14. Um, while you're finding Hosea 14, I can make a public apology for this shirt. Sorry. Uh, I, I, I hate to subject you to shirts like this, but it just felt right this morning. All right. I, I don't know if it's that I have affinity for it because it reminds me of my late grandmother's curtains. Um, or if it's just by general propensity towards bad taste, but I apologize. Hosea 14. Uh, If you haven't been with us the last nine weeks, we've been walking through this book of the Bible, which is a minor prophet. We've been looking at the story of God's relentless redeeming love. And we've been looking at the ways in which God's people are hardwired in our flesh to run from God to other gods. The way that we constantly, constantly feel the pull of other loves the way that every single Christian, every single Christian throughout history actually has a heart whose default setting is to run away from God and to run to all kinds of things that cannot give you what God can give you. Identity and security and meaning and depth. And in the midst of this journey through the book, I hope it's helped you. I hope it's helped you to see God a little bit more clearly and to see yourself a little bit more clearly. If it's done those two things, then praise be to God, that's a win. Today in chapter 14, we get to land the plane. Chapter 14 in some really profound ways is a condensed version of the entire book. It's got the ideas that we've been studying for the last nine weeks. And so what I wanna do is I wanna end in chapter 14 and I wanna highlight the three big appeals, the three big appeals that God makes to his people. Three appeals that God makes to his people. I want to start reading in verse one of chapter 14. Follow with me. It says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity and accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Verse four, God breaks out in love poetry. Here's what he says to his people. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what do I have to do with idols? It's I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress, From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This is God's word. So almost 20 years ago, uh, my wife and I in this room here at Frontline Downtown, we made vows to one another we said I do and became husband and wife. 
And a lot of people talk about how the first year of marriage is really rough. The first year of marriage for us was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, We were really young and we were really in love. And you can tell that we were a little too young to get married by the criteria that we used to determine where to go on our honeymoon. We were like, where is the legal drinking age under 21? Um, Like that may be a hint that you're not ready to get married. Uh, Went to Mexico, came back, had a great first year just being in love. She had been my girl on and off since seventh grade. We were just happy to be together in our terrible apartment. Um, She was so courageous to move into the place that I lived that I thought nothing would ever shake our relationship. Right? And I say that because literally I had, uh, when she moved into my apartment, it was a one bedroom apartment. Uh, here was my furniture. I had a mattress on the floor and an Olympic sized weight bench in the dining room. <laughs> True story. Uh, what did I have on the walls? Did I have art? No, I had my favorite punk rock band poster up. Welcome to Casa de Josh. Right? And, and man, for that first year, she like domesticated me and helped me realize what things like manners were and how a house doesn't have to smell like feet. Um, <laughs> it was really good. It was really good. And then something started to show itself in year two. In year two, my heart started running to the promise of ministry and work satisfying the brokenness and the angst that I've carried with me in my soul since I was a little kid. So the promise that, man, if I just had enough success in ministry, then I wouldn't feel the emptiness inside of me. That if I just built a big enough youth ministry, that the shame that I felt my entire life would go away. That brokenness in me led, to do, led me to do something that, that I'm to this day really sad about. It led me to caring more about ministry outside of my home than my covenantal relationship with my wife. So in that cultural moment, I was uh, 20, 21 years old by then, working full-time at the post office, going to college full-time and pastoring three different youth ministries. And I didn't have any older men in my life that knew me well enough or that cared enough about me to sit me down and tell me that I was an idiot for doing all that instead of loving and being present with my wife. And so what happened is, though we loved each other and we married because we were passionate about each other, we just drifted apart because I cared more about all kinds of other loves than I cared about my bride. I neglected her. Now I didn't abandon her physically. I abandoned her relationally. I didn't commune with her. I didn't connect with her. And that love that we had that was really strong that first year, that love became really anemic and really broken we were drifting apart. We were heading towards destruction in our marriage. God did something really beautiful to rescue me. I was borrowing Nancy's car during this time of sort of not physical separation, but emotional separation. I was driving her car and I remember opening the glove box and in the glove box, there was a mini cassette recorder. Uh, Those of you that are old will remember what that is. Mini cassette recorder. And I took that mini cassette recorder out of the glove box and I hit play on it and out came a song that Nancy was writing about our relationship. And in that song, she was really brutally honest about what was happening in her heart and soul and what it felt like to have a husband make vows to cherish, pursue, and love her 
and then break those vows by not cherishing, not pursuing, and not loving her. I played that song and God in his mercy used the words of that song. He used the vulnerability that she put into that song. He used the pain that was in her voice in that song to actually pierce my heart and bring me to a moment of sobriety when I realized that, man, the way that I'm relating to ministry and to life and to work and to my wife are all out of whack. And I'm actually thinking that I'm gaining the whole world by actually neglecting the primary relationship that God's given me on planet earth to steward, protect, and honor. So it led to repentance. It led to change. Now, why do I tell you that? Because in Hosea 14 and in the rest of Hosea, this is a moment where God wants to speak about the state of his soul to his people. God wants to talk about his affections for his people. He wants to talk about his desires for his people. He wants to relate to his people like a husband to a bride in covenantal communion and in fidelity And all the while, his people, his bride, his children, they keep running away from him. They keep abandoning their relationship. And Hosea, like no other part of the Bible that I'm aware of, is this really awkward, intense moment in which God, in essence, opens up his diary and says, look, this is what it's like to love you and to chase you and to be in relationship with you while you keep abandoning the vows that we've made. This is what it's like to be in relationship with you, my people. This is what it's like to love you and to fight for you and to pursue you as you constantly run after other loves and other gods. As we've walked through this book, God has reiterated time and time again that he actually, like Hosea in this story, he actually is gonna pursue his people and the power of his pursuit is gonna be so powerful so rooted in grace and in love that's more powerful than our love that it's gonna have the power at some point in the history of God's people to break the shackles of adultery, to break to break the bonds of idolatry. And so today, as we close this, God is gonna write love poetry to his people. That's what's happening in this text. God's writing love poetry. And it's appropriate that God's writing love poetry to close out this book. Because if you're trying to figure out what kind of world we're living in, we're living in a world where the primary reality is the love that God has for his people. If you're trying to figure out what kind of story you're in, the primary essence of the story that you're in is a love story between God and his people. And it's not a It's not a neat love story. It's not a tidy love story. It's not a love story without battle and tragedy, but it is a love story. So today, as we wrap this up, we're gonna walk through chapter 14 and God is gonna make three desperate appeals to his folks, three desperate appeals. And in these three desperate appeals, God is gonna share his heart and he's gonna talk about the power of his grace to actually change the wayward hearts of his people and bring them back into fellowship, into communion, into intimacy with him. Three things, desperate appeals that God makes in Hosea. Appeal number one, turn from false lovers and fraudulent gods. Turn from false lovers and fraudulent gods. And this has four parts to it. He wants his people to turn from blaming others and excusing themselves. That's the worship of self. 
Stop blaming others and excusing yourselves. He wants them to turn from fake religion. He wants them to turn from trusting in the world. And he wants them to turn from creating gods that aren't gods. Let me walk you through this quickly. He wants them to turn from blaming others and excusing themselves. Look at verse one. God says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of the way that your parents raised you, because of Canaanite culture, because of the Assyrian political process. No, God says, you've stumbled because of your iniquity. Here's what God's saying to his people and how relevant it is to us today, even though we live in a very different culture, the root problem's the same. God's saying to Israel, look, there's all kinds of external problems around you. The Canaanites worship Baal. The Assyrians are all about worldly force and ungodly power. There's kings in Israel that have been corrupt. They haven't been good leaders. There's systems that are broken. There's all kinds of stuff that's jacked up in the world, but all the things that are jacked up in the world are not excuses for the way that your heart has continually run away from the living God to things that aren't God. God says, look, people, he says, look, people, you need to take responsibility for what's broken inside of you instead of blaming everything that's broken out there. And in our cultural moment, this is really hard to hear, right? We, we live in a cultural moment where there's some forces at work that you don't even know that you're breathing in, in the air that we live in, but they're shaping the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see God. Um, in our cultural moment, we've elevated authenticity as the highest good. And, and what I mean by that is not authenticity in terms of really rightly knowing yourself and being honest about yourself, the way that we framed authenticity is to your own self be true and follow your heart no matter what. Like if you don't believe me, just watch any Disney princess movie, right? Our culture is all about authenticity. Follow your heart no matter what they say. Follow your heart no matter what happens. And that sounds really awesome. I wanna follow my heart, amazing. The problem is, our hearts are prone to leading us to places of destruction, brokenness, and distance from the deeper meaning of life, which is a relationship with God. Your heart and my heart are really good at lying to us. And what happens all the time is people are like, hey, I'm gonna follow my hearts. And as they follow their heart as the highest authority, as the ultimate good, as the only thing that can tell them what's right and what's wrong, what we tend to do is we follow our heart into blowing up relationships and damaging ourselves and the people around us. We're all about, we're all about in this moment, not just authenticity, but we're all about looking inward to find the reason for existence, meaning and identity. Like here's what our culture says. You can self-author yourself. You can craft your own identity. You can be whoever you wanna be. You can do whatever you wanna do. And that sounds really great and really motivational. And it sells a lot of books. But the problem with that, the problem with that is that you actually don't have the capacity to create reality. You can have a take on reality, 
But just because you have a take on reality doesn't mean that you have the creative power to form what is ultimate in your life. So God says to his people in the 8th century BC in an agrarian culture, stuff that we today, 2018, really need to hear. He says, look, you need to return to the Lord your God because you've stumbled because of your iniquity. This is sobering truth. Like if you spend five minutes on social media, I know you guys are super godly and you don't do social media, right? Super godly. You're like, man, I pray a lot. Don't do social media. Um, if you did, if you did like the world, spend time on social media, hypothetically, knowing that you don't. Here's what you'd find in our cultural moment, right? We love blaming everybody else for what's broken in the world. We love it. The right does it. The left does it. Christians do it. Secularists do it. We're all like lighting our hair on fire and we're pointing at all the people that are making the world a sucky place. And nobody is doing what God says to his people to do in Hosea 14.1. Nobody's saying, hey, you know, maybe the problem in the world is me. Maybe the problem's me. Maybe the problem is like everything that's jacked up in the world, all the things that we see out there, the greed and the racism, the objectification of women and the way that we use power to control people and the way that we're all wired to kind of tribe up and be hostile to one another. Maybe all that stuff in the world, maybe all of it exists at least in seed form inside of my own heart. So stop. Like, I know this is really a fun talk already. Like, you talked about a love song. This is a terrible love song. This is like a heavy metal love song. This is not a good love song. We'll get to the love song. But God first wants them to come to a sober realization. Look, your heart's jacked up. And the reason that you worship other gods than God and the reason that your heart loves other stuff more than Jesus and the reason that we trust in money more than our relationship with Christ and the reason that we're willing to use people and abandon relationships and the reason that we play games with one another, the reason that we do all that stuff is not just because your mom and dad failed or our culture's messed up or Hollywood's jacked up. The reason all that stuff happens is because you and me are bent from jump and our, ho- our hearts are hardwired for spiritual adultery. He wants them to turn from blaming others and excusing themselves. And he wants them to do that with the posture and attitude of an orphan. Look at verse three. In you, the orphan finds mercy. This is fascinating because this is not really primarily a text about social justice. God really does care for actual orphans, right? And you see that throughout scripture. Those that don't have a voice, those that are marginalized, those that are gonna tend to get gobbled up by structures in sinful society. God cares about those people. He loves orphans. But I think he's throwing this line about orphans receiving mercy in this context to tell Israel, look, if you really wanna receive my mercy, you actually have to humble yourself like an orphan because an orphan actually needs rescue. An orphan needs an advocate. An orphan needs adoption. An orphan needs somebody that has power and has a voice to engage in their lives. An orphan needs to be covered and fed and clothed. I think what God's saying to Israel is, look, the reason things are broken in the world is not just external cultural forces. The reason things are broken is because human hearts are really sinful. And if you want 
to be in a relationship that shapes you and forms you and redeems you, it starts with this radical act of humility by realizing that you and me are orphans and we really need to be adopted. You can't self-rescue. You can't self-actualize. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't just try harder to fix what's gone wrong in your heart that's so prone to spiritual adultery. We need help. He also tells his people to turn from fake religion. We see that in 14.2. He wants them to actually come to him with sacrifices that are not divorced from their hearts. He doesn't want empty forms. He doesn't want religious people playing religious games. He wants people who actually are connected between their words and their hearts that love and know God. He wants people to turn from trusting in the world. Look at verse three. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will no more say our God to the work of our hands in you, the orphan finds mercy. Here's what he's saying. Like, I don't want my people to trust in Assyria. That's the power of the world. In their particular cultural moment, it was this big growing empire with a lot of money and a lot of soldiers. And Israel's like, oh, we'll trust in Assyria, not God. And God's like, well, that's kind of ironic because it's Assyria that's gonna destroy your nation in the next generation. Like they're gonna wipe you out. God's like, you know what else is kind of ironic? It's kind of ironic that you keep making gods that can't talk and asking them to speak to you. And you keep making gods that don't have ears and asking them to hear you. And you keep making gods that can't move their hands and asking them to rescue you. And God's like, look, folks, returning to me is realizing that what's broken in the world is really broken in here. And it's that we're prone to play games with God, with dead religion. We're prone to have all kinds of lovers that are most important in our life instead of the God who created us. We're prone to worshiping the work of our hands, our careers, our families, our children, comfort, vacations, fill in the blank. And the result of all that is not the good life. It's not more relationship. It's not more depth. It's not more beauty. The result of that is that the gods that we worship actually devour us like Assyria is going to devour Israel. When we play with fire, we get burnt. And so God wants his children to turn from false gods. He wants them to turn from false lovers. He wants them to come back to the true God that really loves them. And he wants them to come back to the true husband that wants to pursue them and be in relationship with them. And he wants them to turn towards him. This is the second, this is the second urging of Hosea 14. Turn towards the Lord, your God. And this is the love poetry. Why should you turn from worshiping career to actually finding your identity in God? Why should you turn from self-rule where you're the ultimate authority and you're trying to author your own life and your own meaning and you're trying to play the be true to your own heart game, why should you abandon being true to yourself and actually bow your knee before the living God? Um, Why does God want you to consider that family, even if you get the spouse you're dreaming of and the perfect kids that you're imagining, that family can't get to the deeper desires and angst and longing of your soul? Why does God want you to see all that and come to him? Well, here's what he says. Listen to this. Verse four, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. This is amazing. Amazing. 
the first verse in this love poem is God saying, look, um, I'm not gonna withhold my love from you even though you've run and you've squandered my love on other lovers. And the reason that I'm not gonna withhold my love from you is I've actually done something to turn away my wrath that you deserved, my anger that you deserved, the punishment that I should give you for cheating on me again and again and again. I'm not gonna give you that punishment. In fact, instead of giving you what you deserve, I'm gonna give you grace, which is gonna be love and relationship. Hey, friends, look at me. The first reason that you should abandon your false lovers and your gods that you've created is because the true God wants to offer you the totality of himself in grace because of the finished work of Jesus. Jesus on the cross makes it possible for God to give you something other than anger because of the way that you've belittled him and ignored him and turned from him. Jesus through his resurrection makes it possible for you to actually be connected with the ultimate reality that spoke everything into being, including you to know him, to receive him. And God's going to add to that just how beautiful it looks like to walk with him in faithfulness in verse five. Here's what he's going to do to his people who he changes with grace. I will be like dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He will take root like the trees of Lebanon. Here's what he's saying. The more you go after your other lovers, thinking that they're going to be the source of life, that they're going to give you the good life that you've dreamed of, the more you pray to these bales that promise to make your life beautiful, the more you look like a desert. You worship money and power. And instead of having a rich, beautiful life, you just lost all your relationships. Now you're just lonely. You worship sex and instead of that fulfilling you, now you feel ashamed and dirty and used and addicted and you feel compulsion when it comes to relationships. It left your soul frail. You thought that food and drink could medicate you into a place of having a better life and being at peace. And now all of a sudden, the more you eat and the more you drink, the deeper down the hole you fall of despair and self-loathing. All of the gods and all of the lovers that demand your attention and your affection in this world leave us looking more like deserts than gardens. And here's God saying, hey, you know what I want to do? I want to be the dew. I want to be the dew for your soul. I want to be the rain that makes you come alive. I want to be, I want to be the one that causes you to turn green and have vines that spread and grow and roots that go deep. God doesn't just create life. He is life. He's like, I want to walk with you in such a way that what was barren and ugly becomes beautiful. St. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church in his, um, in his spiritual memoir, Confessions, he has this famous line. You've probably heard it. It's beautiful. It's so true. He says, thou, O God, has made us for thyself. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Yes. God says to Israel, I want to be, I want to be what makes you beautiful. Look at verse six. He adds to his love point these words. His shoots will spread out. His beauty will be like the olive, his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Man, this is amazing because the more Israel has chased after these other lovers 
to replace God. The more Israel has built their own gods, the more they've been covered in shame, filth, and dirt. Like there's a stink. There's a stink to Israel in this moment. Are you with me? It's a stink. It's like, it's the spiritual equivalent of meeting a person that's just fallen so low in addiction that they're just shooting up on the street and they're covered in sores, right? And you just walk up to them and you're like, man, like you're worth more than this. I wanna see you better. And you don't know how to relate to them because they're covered, they're covered in filth that their addictions brought them and they don't smell human anymore and they're self-loathing. And it's just, it's just like so bleak and so low that there's no hope. That's how Israel is in this moment. And God's like, hey, I know that you're covered in dirt. I know your addictions have almost destroyed you. I know that you stink to high heaven, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna cover you with my clothing. I'm gonna make you clean. I'm gonna tend your wounds. I'm gonna make you smell like Lebanon. What's he saying there? Well, Lebanon is this prophetic picture of that which is green and verdant, that which is alive. He's like, I'm going to take your shame. I'm going to cover you. I'm going to cover you with beauty. I'm going to take what's funky and gross and bust it up. I'm going to clean it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to tweak it. He adds to this verse eight. Oh, Ephraim, what do I have to do with idols? It's I who answer you. It's I who look after you. Not idols, not money, not politics, not possessions. I'm the one that look after you. I'm the one that answers you. And then he says this really weird mixed metaphor. He says, I'm like the evergreen cypress from me comes your fruit. Well, I don't know a ton about trees, but I know that evergreens, uh, that a cypress doesn't, it doesn't have fruit that you eat. And I know that fruit trees, like in the wintertime, their leaves fall off. So God's mixing the metaphors. Here's what he's saying. I'm gonna be like an evergreen that always has fruit for you. I'm going to be the one that provides sustenance for your souls. And I'm going to be so full of life and beauty. I'm an unending supply. I'm a reservoir that's not going to go dry of life and grace and beauty. God's saying, look, your gods that you keep giving your allegiance to, they're total liars and frauds. Can we just stop for a minute and just realize or admit how crazy we are as human beings? We're so crazy because we keep making the same mistakes, don't we? We're like, oh, this will be the answer to everything that's broken in my life. I'll just throw myself to this. And then you're like, oh, that didn't work. That went poorly. I'm more gutted. I'm more sad. I'm more frustrated. Or you get all the things that you thought you had to have to be happy. And you're like, wow, that's depressing to know that that didn't work because that was my best shot. You get married and you're like, oh, that's the answer. I found my soulmate. I found the one. This is like, I'm going to reenact the ending of Jerry Maguire every day for the rest of my life. And then at some point along the road, you're like, okay, man, this is really hard and not satisfying the deepest longings of my soul. And God is saying to his people, he's like, guys, you're so crazy. Sin makes you crazy. Idolatry makes you crazy because God is standing there saying, look, I'm the one that hears you. I'm the one that answers you. I'm the one that wants to protect you. I'm the one that's like an evergreen that also bears fruit. I'm constantly, I'm constantly available and willing to pour my very life and sustenance into your souls. He wants them to turn to him. 
Now, I want to end with this. The last appeal that God makes to Israel, we'll end with this quickly. He appeals to them to walk the path, to walk the path. And this is, I think, the best place we could possibly end this series. I think it's profound that Hosea adds verse nine because it sort of breaks the narrative, right? It's like you're in the narrative and God's doing this love poem and it feels like the Song of Solomon, only God's talking about how much he loves his people. And then all of a sudden, the narrative gets broken, the poetry ends, and you have this really weird way to end the book. Here's how the book ends, verse nine. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them for the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them. So here's how Hosea ends this book. He's like, look, okay, I'm prophesying to Israel and and that prophecy is gonna be handed down to God's people for many ages and generations. And here's what I'm gonna say at the end of this book. If you're wise, pay attention, wake up and walk in the path of the Lord. Now, what is he talking about? And why does he end the book here? Well, I think what he's saying gets finished and clarified by Jesus. Because here's what Jesus says about following. He, he says there's two roads, right? There's the wide road and there's the narrow road. And the wide road, the wide road is really easy to get on and stay on. In fact, you don't have to do anything to be on the wide road. You just sort of follow your impulses wherever they take you. You follow culture wherever it blows. You follow your desires. You just just be true to your heart and you're on the wide road. And the thing about the wide road is there's, there's not usually a ton of resistance on it. The wide road is like a really big current that you could just float in. Wide road is like, like lazy river, right? You just float in it and it's easy and everybody else is floating in it. Wide road doesn't challenge the adultery of our hearts. Wide road indulges all the adulteries of our hearts. Wide road allows you to be like a ping pong ball, bouncing back and forth between all your gods and all your lovers for the rest of your life until in complete exhaustion, you give up the ghost. It's wide road. But narrow road is different. Narrow road offers tons of resistance. There's not a ton of people on it. It's hard, it's hard going, it's painful going, it's costly going. Wide road in the way of Christ is, wide road in the way of Christ is actually walking with Jesus slowly over time to be formed in such a way that the adultery of our hearts, the way that we love everything under the sun more than we love God, actually slowly starts to get renewed and changed and tweaked painfully and slowly and difficultly until we look a little bit more like Jesus and a little bit less like Gomer in this book. Narrow road feels like God's killing you. Because narrow road is cutting things out of you. So as we close this today, here's what I know. We walked through this book, great nine weeks together. We had fun. We had some laughs. We freaked some people out right? Gave you, we gave you some depressing talks before brunch. We had some really funny talks before brunch. Um, Hosea is over. Now what? Well, here's the now what. 
whoever is wise and discerning, what are you going to do about your journey with Jesus towards more fidelity? What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do now knowing that the default setting of your heart is towards spiritual adultery and worshiping gods that aren't God? What are you going to do with that? Because Hosea is calling it a way and Jesus calls it a way. It's a road. It's a path. It's, it's not something that's instantaneous. Like you don't just meet Jesus and all of a sudden your heart is totally unlike Gomer. You meet Jesus and you start to realize how much your heart's like Gomer. So as we end this today, let me, let me close with this. The whole world is trying to vie for your attention and your affection in replacement of the attention and affection you should place on God. This is not the only liturgical moment in your life. It's not. What we're experiencing together on Sundays is about your loves being shaped and formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what happens at work is also shaping your loves. What happens in the city when we do third spaces is shaping your loves, entertainment shaping your loves, social media shaping your loves. And the answer to that is not to withdraw from the world and all become monks. Like that would be fun for a little while. But God wants you in the world. So how do you resist the adultery of your own heart in a world that's trying to shape your loves to love everything except God? How do you navigate that? Well, let let me close with this. The narrow road is a road of formation that actually takes a bit of intentionality. So we close this today. Let me just say this. You're being shaped all the time by lovers that are whispering in your ear, making big promises. And if you're going to be shaped in such a way to say no to their whispers, you're actually going to have to work really hard to pursue Jesus and hear his voice. Spiritual discipline is not about burdensome things that you do to get God to love you and accept you. Because of the finished work of Jesus, you're loved and accepted, period. You don't earn anything. But prayer, Bible study, community group, word on Sundays, table on Sundays, confession and assurance, silence and solitude. These disciplines that in our culture, the Christians have walked away from because we don't want to be legalistic. um, These disciplines are actually really important for you and me if we're going to be in a world that's alive with spiritual adultery with a heart that's prone to spiritual adultery if we're going to actually grow in our love for Jesus. Dallas Willard said it well. He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning So tomorrow you can just jump into the lazy river of all the lovers and gods of this world. Or or you can be subversive. You can can stomp your foot and say, look, the first thing I'm going to do today is I'm actually going to pursue having my affections, my love shaped by the lover of my soul, Jesus Christ. I want to meet with him in the word this week. I want to meet with him in community. I want to meet with him at the table on Sundays as we gather. Here's what I think. And I'm, I know I need to shut up. Here's what I think. <laughs> I think that we're being shaped so quickly by the world that we live in. Our loves are being shaped and formed so quickly by the world that we live in 
coupled with this moment where you and me are prone to being really lazy in our spiritual formation. So what, what it really looks like is we're just, we're just caught up in a tsunami of just worldly, worldly, materialistic, individualistic, heart-shaping lies. When I planted Frontline, Nancy and I planted Frontline in 2005. And, and man, I was like, I had this dream of like super special forces Christians that would be a part of our church. We would all like be the kind of people that will like parachute into nightclubs to tell people about Jesus. You know, it's like super idealistic, super idealistic. We were just going to have all, every Christian in our church is going to be always committed to Jesus. Ride or die, 24-7, frontline, get the tattoo. <laughs> and here, 13 years later, you know what I'm actually realizing? You know, it would be really radical if people in our church, I'm talking about members of our church, it would be really radical if we just read our Bibles like four times a week. It would be really radical if we just got into gospel community, not because your community group is awesome, and it answers all the needs of your soul, but because something happens to your affections when you're around other Christians, even difficult, weird Christians. If you like, if we just like read our Bible four times a week and actually we're in community confessing our sin. And if we just showed up on Sunday morning, not every other week or every fourth week, but every week in our cultural moment, that would be really radical. I love you guys so much. I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. So proud of you. You guys just walked through a minor prophet for nine weeks. Like proud of you, proud of you. I know there's hunger in this room to have our loves shaped by the truth of who Jesus is. That's his grace.